we're talking about culture. Our series is called The Issachar Factor. And basically, we're talking about the fact that our culture is a mess. Our culture is pretty uh, messed up in so many ways. And the Issachar Factor is a series that we started in order to say we need to be like the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what they should do. These were David's advisors, David's strategists, King David's uh, uh, military planners who, who didn't necessarily fight in the battles, but they understood the landscape they understood the culture, they understood the times, and they were able to give good advice as to what to do. Here's what I hope you hear this morning. The central question of the church is how do we respond to culture? How do we relate to it? We, uh, uh, what approach should we take as a church in order to, to be relevant in culture, but relevant with only one thing in mind, that the culture may know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the culture may know that there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is redemption uh, that is available through the wonderful gift that God gave us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked a little bit about faith and culture. Why faith and culture? Why, why is there a tension? We talked about uh, why 1 Peter is a relevant uh, uh, book for us to look in. So, so today, I want to talk about be the church. Be the church. What are we to be in culture? So the church and culture. Here's a statement that I've kind of played with for a while. The starting line has moved. The Judeo-Christian assumption is no more. For most of the history of our country, in founding fathers on, there was an assumption that the Christian story, based on the Jewish story, was the relevant spiritual guide for our lives. The Bible was considered to be a, a document by most that would be relevant and authoritative in people's lives, but now that might not be the case so much anymore. Our culture is a celebration of self. It's a celebration of immorality. It's a celebration of so many things that, 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 that scripturally we would find to be offensive. We would find to be incongruent with the things in Scripture. And the goal for us individually and as a church is authentic faith. I wrote this in my journal. Authentic faith values identity as a Christ follower more than it values identity as a cultural influencer. It, it values identity, not an idea like we talked about last week. For so many, faith is an idea, faith in faith. But for those of us who, who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then, then the authentic faith is that we want to be like Him. Our, our mission statement here at Dunwoody Baptist Church, we are passionately becoming more like Jesus. And we are committed to transformation of our home, our church, our community, and our world. We want to be transformative in culture and not reactive to culture. 
So last week we said that one of the, the tracks to making a difference in this culture is found at the very end of 1 Peter chapter 1 when there are, are four imperatives, three at the end of chapter 1, one into chapter 2, four imperatives, four statements, four commands, four, four directions for us. Number one, we are to live in hope. Number two, we are to be holy. Number three, we are to love one another. And number four, we are to desire God like a baby desires milk. And so uh, Peter is setting us up in his culture, in, in his culture where the, the Roman way, the Roman uh, uh, immorality, the debauchery of the culture, the, the, the cruelty, uh, Christians were known not to participate in the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire, in the, the, the bloody viciousness of the gladiatorial conquests in the Colosseums. The, they, they were known not to be a part of that. And many were suffering because of it. So Peter changes metaphors kind of in midstream. He goes from talking about milk to talking about masonry. From milk to masonry. In the last part of chapter 1 and into the first part of chapter 2, he says that we are to desire God like a baby desires milk. We're to desire God like a baby desires milk. We called it a spiritual sweet tooth, that, that craving, that, that thing that, that gets you up at night, that keeps you up at night. We're, we're, it's that sense of, I desire God. I think about God when I wake up. I think about God when I go to bed. I think about God in my interactions with people. I crave God like a baby craves milk. Well, now he's going to talk about stones, and it's a really, really interesting thing that he does. I'm going to uh, read a, a few verses for you that are, that are found, but this is what sets it up. We are part of something so much bigger. We're part of something so much bigger, and sometimes we think the church is just something that we do on Sundays or something that we're a member of or something that we're a part of, and it's, it is almost reduced to a resume item. I, I work at so-and-so, I, I, I play the following sports, my kids are involved in these things, these are my hobbies, and oh yeah, I go to church. But what Peter is trying to tell the first century uh, inhabitants of Asia Minor, what he's trying to help them understand is that, that it's so much bigger than just them. It's, it's huge, look at what he says. So first part of chapter 2, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and desire the pure spiritual milk. And, and so, so that's a modifier that, that individually we put away some things that cause the world to see toxic relationships within the church, and we desire God. But look at him switching gears in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, let me give a little bit of an introduction. There are about five books that, that have been really interesting to me, and some of you like it when I move into professor mode. So, so these are five books that are really, really interesting to me 
regarding this subject. One is an all-time classic, uh, Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. And in that book, he talks about five ways that we as a church relate to culture, as the way that the living stones, the, the collective of living stones, that is the church, the way that we relate to culture. They are, these are the, the way he says, he says that there is Christ against culture. There is the Christ of culture. Christ against culture, obviously in opposition to culture. Loyalty to Christ uh, entails a rejection of culture and society. The Christ of culture, an agreement between Christ and culture, what we talked about last week, an accommodation. Christ above culture. Christ is the fulfillment of culture. The Christ above culture is the dominant voice of church history. The fundamental issue is between God and humanity, not God and the world. So, so Christ above culture. The fourth uh, way that, that Niebuhr pointed out, he said Christ and culture in paradox. This is the one I believe that we're most close to. It sees an ongoing tension between Christ and culture. The conflict between God and humanity is ever present, and this conflict represents Christ and culture as well. He, uh, Niebuhr wrote, the Christian lives between two magnetic poles. And then the, the final one, uh, Christ the transformer of culture. And oddly enough, that was the one that Niebuhr preferred. He, he, he said that Christ is the transformer of culture and that we are part of that. I kind of think the, the fourth one, that there's a, a, a paradox. There's this, this fallen world that we're placed in. And then there is the Christ in us and through us, the, the hope of glory, the change agent that's inside of us, there, that, that, is, that is in tension sometimes with the culture. And that was Peter's point. He said, you are to be holy in a culture that is unholy. So I promised you five books. There's Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. There's David Platt's book, Counter Culture. There's Russell Moore's book, Onward. And then uh, uh, Vith, uh, Gary Veith wrote a book called Postmodern. And, and those are incredible books that, that, that help us understand this whole argument. But the point is that there are realities of how we deal with culture. There's, there's our, our, our lens of, of reality, our lens of humanity, our lens of, of how we relate to God. And I know that I've just lost some of you because I've gone professor on you. But, 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 but please capture this. For us to talk honestly about the things in culture, about the the immorality in culture, about the anger in our culture, about the anxiety in our culture, about the things that are hurting other people in culture, about the things that are so obviously against Scripture, even against science, the, the things that are, are being promoted as normative, being promoted as the, the, the way that we should just relate that it's like our, our heads are going to explode because we, we understand that there is no way that this can be part of God's plan. My observation for students in seminary to begin to understand the culture is where I started. The Judeo-Christian assumption is no more. We assume now only self. One writer pointed out that our culture has shifted from spiritual and religious to either spiritual and not religious, or religious and not 
spiritual. Spiritual and not religious. I don't need to go to church in order to connect to God. Religious but not spiritual. I have a religion, but God has nothing to do with it. And so our culture is a mess. And Peter says that you have been placed in it as people who are to be salt and light, as Jesus said. You are to be living stones. But look at at what he says here. This This is so good. He says, you are a living stone and you're rejected by men. Your, your, your views, your, 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 your ideas about faith are not always going to line up with what the culture is shoving at us. The, it, it, it's probably not going to line up very often. And, and uh, one of my favorite books is a book called Too Pagan, Too Christian. And it was written by a radio show host called Dick, uh, named Dick Staub. And he said, if your Christian friends are uncomfortable because you're too pagan and your pagan friends are, too, are uncomfortable because you're too Christian, you're probably living the tension pretty well. And that's the tension that we live in in culture. And so we, we can't accept that immorality is okay. We can't uh, accept that, that, that identity politics means that you can be anybody you want to be just because you declared it. We can't accept that it's okay to, to have intimacy with anybody and everybody or anybody and everybody. We, we, can't, we can't accept that it's okay to traffic. We can't accept that it's okay to, uh, uh, to abuse uh, each other, to, to abuse justice, to abuse drugs, to abuse all of the kind of things that, that, that obviously come to mind when we talk about culture. We are living stones, and look why. In the sight of God, chosen and precious, you're being built up as a spiritual house. The word that Peter uses there is the same word that he might use for temple, that we are living stones. So, so Christ is the cornerstone. Some translations, Psalm 118, where this came from, it, it uses the word capstone. And a capstone, of course, is the stone at the top of an arch. And a cornerstone is the, is the foundation or the, 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 the stone that sets the, the line, the plumb line for the rest of the course of bricks. Either one works. The, the capstone holds everything together. But the cornerstone is the one that's set in place to make sure. And a mason would pull a string, uh, a level string, to make sure that all of the other stones could go into place and you'd have a good foundation for the wall. That's what Peter is trying to say here. That we are the living stones that are put brick by brick, course by course, and what we are forming is the house of God. Well, what happens in the house of God? He's using very Jewish ideas here. What happens in the house of God is sacrifice. And what he's talking about, the, the Jewish readers would understand that there's only one person who's allowed to go into the most intimate place in the house of God, and that's the high priest, and only once a year. And he goes in for one reason and one reason only, to offer sacrifices for sin. 
And here God is saying through Simon Peter that that Jesus is the cornerstone and then we are the living stones. We make up the house of God and we are able to access the house of God. We we no longer have to, to have a sacrifice offered on our behalf. Jesus has been the sacrifice for us. He is the uh, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Even the builders rejected it. He was rejected. Isaiah said he was despised, rejected by men. He was hung on a cruel Roman cross, but that was sufficient for the sacrifice that had been done in the temple for centuries. And now Peter is saying, no more. You are the house of God. You have access to God. This is about collective access. Look at what he says. You're being built up as a spiritual house, verse 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Sounds a whole lot like what Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 12. Be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that good and perfect and acceptable will. Same language. Uh, Peter and Paul, I think, spent the, the last four or five years of their lives together. They were executed in Rome long about the same time. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they had long conversations. And so the language seems to be very, very similar. And then Peter sort of proclaims the prophecy. It stands in Scripture. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, That's really interesting that he uses the word shame because shame is such a hot word in our culture. That, that to feel shame, to feel guilt, to be shamed. He's saying that if we allow ourselves to be the living stones that are stacked on that, that wall, that are lined up with the cornerstone, that are held together by the capstone, if we allow ourselves to be those living stones, shame is not a part of who we are. We are declared. You see the words. We are declared chosen. We are declared precious. You're going you're to see some more words in just a few minutes that are, that are incredible. He said, you are the church. You are the church. You're living stones so much bigger than culture. Well, look at verse 9 and 10. He says, you are a chosen people. Now, there's a type of wording in the New Testament, in the Greek, which is a a purpose clause. The the Greek is a henna clause. I I talked about that last week, H-I-N-A, henna, and it is a, a, a purpose clause. So when you read in the Bible, you'll read so that or in order for or in order that it's a definite connection. Something happens so that something else can happen. Sometimes around here with the pastors, we say that, that all of ministry is a henna clause. We do what we do in order that God may be proclaimed. We do what we do in order that someone might be able to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do what we do in order that. Well, in this particular phrase, there is a sense that there are incredible benefits of being part of the body of Christ within the culture. 
He talks about the shame that is averted by being a follower of Christ. And then he talks about those who don't. He says in the end of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But then in verse 9, he says, but you, but you are a chosen race, one, a royal priesthood, two, a holy nation, three, a people of his own possession, four, that you may proclaim. There's, that, there's the henna clause. There's the, the purpose clause. The reason that you're chosen, the reason that he picked you, the reason that, that he allowed you to come to him to have your sins forgiven now and forever is because he wants you to proclaim. The reason that you are a royal priesthood, that's where we get the phrase, the priesthood of all believers, that we no longer have to have somebody to go to God on our behalf, to hear our confession, to, to uh, go and advocate for us. We are allowed into the Holy Holies. We are living stones. We form the house of God that sacrifices can be offered. He says you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you are God's own. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies who he who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Church, don't miss that. Don't miss what he's doing there. He's saying this, you are suffering. Peter was writing to a culture, uh, a, a church that was being persecuted by the culture. The culture stood against what the church stood for. And, and, and just like it does today, the culture stands against what the church stands for. And he says there, there are difficult conversations at the water cooler. There are difficult conversations at the, at the table. But if we believe this with all our heart, we can't let our friends, our relatives, our coworkers, we, our, our classmates at school, we can't allow them not to hear of this incredible message. And he says you're going to get some hard times for it. But don't forget, you're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, that you may proclaim, so that you can proclaim. Your purpose is to proclaim the excellencies. He called you out of darkness into light. You have passed from death to life. Once you didn't have mercy, now you have mercy. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely wow. He's called us. And he's called us to make a difference. He's called us to be a difference. Uh, that's why our mission statement, love God, love people, make disciples, make a difference. We want to be known as a, a people, certainly who, who are holy, certainly who are obedient to what God has told us to do. But we want to be known as people who love. Watch what he does here. He says, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Get to that in just a second. You, you, are, you are travelers. You're, and I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He picks up that theme over in chapter 4. We'll talk about chapter 3 in the weeks ahead, but he picks that same theme up, and, and some even uh, see a, a strong connection between the end of chapter 2 the beginning of chapter 4. He says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. One translation says, no longer motivated by human desire, but motivated only by the will of God. That, that sounds an awful lot like the end of uh, chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, that, that we are now motivated by the will of God. We are now craving God like a baby craves milk. We are living stones uh, put together so that we can proclaim His excellencies so that we can be holy, so that we can love one another, so that we can crave God. So he says, it's time that is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And now he crosses into the culture. These, these have specific applications, but I'll just read them. He, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, and this, this picks up the theme from chapter 2, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Over in chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 12, he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you. There's another purpose clause that, that, that we keep our conduct as different from the culture so that when they ask about it, so that when it's noticed, so that they may see your good works and glorify God. Let's pick this up for just a second. There's often a clear line between the things that we know to be right and the things we observe around us. Even the things that, that, that we consume as entertainment, even the things that, that we do, even the jokes that we entertain, even some of the things that, that go on, there's, there's just this sense in us, there's this voice in us that this is something that's just not holy. I don't have to go into lists and lists and lists of sin. Peter didn't. He, he gave enough illustrations to where the people who heard him would understand exactly what was going on. But now he says, church, there is a better way. Rather than to be involved in all of those things, let your fellowship be known for love. Look at what he does. He goes into it. Let's see. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flooded debauchery, but they will give an account with him who is ready to judge. They, they will give an account. The end of things is at hand. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Above all, keep loving one another. He says, there it is. You are living stones. You, you have been built into the house of God. Sacrifices are being offered no more because the supreme sacrifice, Jesus Christ on the cross, buried on the third day he arose, he ascended to heaven, and then he will come again. The gospel. 
The sacrifice has been offered, and now we have access to God. And he says, your response, church, is not to try to attack the culture. Russell Moore said it this way, yes, we are to oppose demons, but we're not supposed to demonize our opposition. (laughs) We are to oppose demons, but we're not supposed to demonize our opposition. We're supposed to love No matter how you feel about abortion, you are loved. No matter how you feel about the the various forms of sexuality in our culture, you are loved. No matter how you feel about human trafficking, no matter how you feel about anger, no matter how you feel about uh, 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 anger and and theft and, and violence, no matter how you feel, and even if you've been a part of all of that, You have to understand God loves you. Why do we do all this? Because God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Whoever would believe in him, whoever would observe by watching the church that this is an attractive, shameless, redeemed life. And it is a life here on this earth and it is a life for eternity. I want to close with a, a story. The, the rest of this scripture, the end of things is at hand above all, loving, uh, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. All, all of the living stones have been given a, a talent, a skill, a gift so that the, this body of Christ works. We've got a Discover Your Purpose uh, lab coming up where we talk about spiritual gifts, the things that each individual in the collective, that is the church, how, how it all comes together. And there's another purpose clause there. Whoever speaks as one speaks of God, whoever serves, whoever serves by the strengths that God supplies in order that in order that, the end of verse 11, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's, it's just full of these purpose clauses. Well, there is a, a school shooting that you might not remember. October 2nd, 2006, there was a shooting that occurred at the West Nickel Mines School a one-room Amish schoolhouse. And a guy named Carl, Charles Carl Roberts took hostages, and then he shot 10 girls aged 6 through 13, killing five before he turned his gun on himself. Now, now you would say, Alan, why are you doing something this down? Listen to what happened after that. On the day of the shooting, the grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, we must not think evil of this man. Another Amish father noted, he had a mother and a wife too. He has a soul and now he's standing before a just God. One of the other Amish brethren said, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who would have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of a man who committed these horrible acts. In the days that followed, 
the Amish sent a delegation to the home of the man who did all this to comfort his wife, to comfort his mother. Uh, there, there were scenes of, of men just hugging a, a, a grieving father whose son committed this horrible tragedy. Thirty of these Amish people went to his funeral. There's just this, this sense that love has overcome. And when we look back at that story, yes, horrible, horrible, heinous act. But the response of the church the response of the faith community, the response uh, of the Amish people, Marie Roberts, the, the wife of the, uh, the, the shooter, he wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, for their grace, for their mercy. She wrote, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. For this, we sincerely thank you. Russell Moore said it this way. It's our turn to march into the future. And we do not do so as a moral majority, as a righteous remnant, but as crucified saints with nothing to offer the world but a broken body and spilled blood and unceasing witness. We are strangers and exiles on our best days, but we are not orphans and wanderers. Our strangeness is only hopeful if it is freakishly clinging to the strange, strange mission of Christ crucified and risen. The pursuit of righteousness and justice is of no purpose if it doesn't flow from seeking the kingdom first. Beside us, there may be flags and we'll pledge allegiance where we ought to and where we can. But over, always over us, there's a cross. We may not always see where we are going, but we know the way onward. Church, we may not understand the culture. We may not appreciate the culture. We are right to look at some things in the Scripture and look at the news cycle or look out the window or look down the street and go, what's happening is not right. But our responsibility is to take a stand for the things that are right biblically, but always to do so in love. We will never change the culture with violence. We will never change the culture at all. Only God can do that. And the Scripture tells us that this world will continue to have bad actors in the culture until the time that God decides to pull the curtain closed. And until that time, above all else, love one another.